The phoenix and the dragon in traditional Japanese tattoos symbolize harmony and power. That there is no inner strength without harmony. Brought to you by your two co-hosts, Brian Comstock, an e-commerce brand builder in the field of ergonomics with GetNeely.com. He's experimented with every form of scientifically validated human advancement, ranging from MDMA-assisted therapy, ayahuasca retreats, to peptides and stem cells. Scott Conway is a lead generation and sales expert who has a HIROS.com certified lead generation agency, LGG Media. He is a dragon. Episode 14, The Phoenix and the Dragon. We have a really exciting guest, Mr. Sharif Herrera, coming on. He is a e-commerce badass. He actually owns the largest e-commerce store in Canada. He's a spiritual gangster and he's been in the business for over 13 years. He's, we're honored to have him on board on the podcast today and then have him share his story. Sharif, how are you doing, sir? Good. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. This is actually my first ever podcast, so. Wow. Happy to pop that cherry. Yep. <laughs> Brian, no better, than, no better than by Captain America himself. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm proud of this one. I'm, this makes me proud that we got this guy on. So I'm excited to kind of unpack your whole story. And you've been mono-focused, at least on your LinkedIn, which I know you, have, you don't always you have better things than even update that, but it's just incredible that you've stuck with something for this long. And I'm just thrilled to unpack your journey. Yeah. When I think about it, it's been a long journey. There have been a lot of ups and downs, but I'd love to share with the world because I don't think anyone out there really knows what we went through to build the business. Yeah. So where do you want to start with it? Like you're mentioning, like it even started before the actual business. You want to explain some sort of context of your life preceding the start of the business and how that informed the genesis and ongoings? Yeah. So like I was really thinking about it and like reflecting on my life. And I think there's been three phases to it. There was the phase when I was just a young kid. I'll never forget this. I think I was 13 years old and my dad took me out to this event and there was like this prodigy Sri Lankan 13 year old kid who made like this business selling websites. And he was 13 years old and I was 13 years old at that time. And I just remember him being in a suit and there was media and everyone was there and they had this big event for him. And then on the way home, we were driving. I asked my dad, I'm like, Hey, how come I can't do that? Right? Like, how come I can't build a business? And my dad like looked at me, he said, did you try? I was like, no. He said, then how do you know that you can't do it? I was like, okay, you got a good point. And that's honestly like what started the entrepreneurial journey for me. I went from that to selling like chocolate bars door-to-door in my neighborhood, like going to the dollar store, buying chocolate bars and overpricing it and selling it to my neighbors, saving up a hundred dollars. And then went from every small business, made a t-shirt business, wrote a business plan, submitted it to the government, got a free $3,000 and made a t-shirt company. And so I had a whole bunch of small entrepreneurial endeavors before I really launched my first business. And it started off when I was a kid because my parents actually didn't let me get a job. They told me play baseball, go to school. And sure, do your little businesses on the side. They didn't let me get a job at that time. So that's interesting because, like, a lot of times the on the job training is really coveted, especially at an early age. But they had you focus on other things, and you still found a way to tap into that with the side businesses that you were doing. So you, I feel like you got a good, I feel like you still had a pretty good kind of all around athletics, school, scholarships, and then progressing your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, I was broke as 
I was broke as hell, so I needed to make some money and I couldn't get a job. So I started these businesses on the side and uh, got a scholarship, played for the Ontario Blue Jays. It was a traveling team. So we would travel all across North America, like a bus full of 40 kids and uh, pretty much got a scholarship and then turned it down. And that's like where the second phase of my story actually begins. The entrepreneurial journey, the real one starts. What was that like turning down that, that scholarship with your family? That must've been a really difficult conversation to have. It, for my dad, it was, he's like a cricket stud. So backstory was, he was actually one of the best cricketers in Sri Lanka growing up around 17, 18. And then he hurt his neck and got paralyzed on a freak accident and he lost it all. Miraculously came back, somehow recovered. And then I was born luckily because he recovered. But so he put a lot of, not pressure, but he was disappointed. My father was disappointed, but at the end of the day, they still supported me in that decision on like what I needed to do. They really supported me like what I wanted to do. It just became difficult. Like baseball became like a, almost like a job. It was like every day traveling, playing different division one schools in the U.S. I just didn't see a pathway to success that way. Cause I was, to be honest, I was a small guy, even though I had the skill sets, I was a small guy. Interesting. And how did you go from that to starting your business? Yeah. Okay. So it's a long story coming off at any time, but basically in grade 12, when I was doing my baseball endeavors and traveling, I made the worst decision. So I thought at that time. I ended up dropping gym class because I didn't want to do a written assignment. I just I hate writing. And I went to my teacher and I was like, hey, if I drop this class, will I still be able to graduate? She said, yeah, according to your credits, you will be able to. And she was wrong. I wasn't able to graduate because I dropped gym class. So the next year, I'm watching my friends graduate. I'm doing an extra year of school. I'm playing baseball. And pretty much I decided at that time, you know what? I'm not going to do baseball. I'm going to go to Ryerson University. So to be clear, like she, she messed up or like the only point of her job. Pretty much. That was pretty much. <laughs> like once again, that would have been more useful to me yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> that was the worst feeling ever. Cause like, who can I complain to? And I just felt dumb dropping gym class because I didn't want to do a written assignment. It's my fault too. So I dropped gym class. I gave up my scholarship and I pretty much went to the school called Ryerson University because they had this $25,000 business plan competition. This is like 2008, September, 2008. That's when I started the school. At that time, I was going to doing like grade 13 with these two buddies of mine. And we came up with this jewelry business idea. It was just, let's just call it a jewelry business. And we wrote a business plan. We created projections. We made this 30 page document on getting into that business plan competition. And we handed in the business plan five minutes late and got disqualified. Yeah. And I remember looking at the professor going down the escalator, carrying all the business plans, try again next year. And I'll just never forget this. I looked at my two buddies and we just started bursting out laughing. Cause like, that's like how we handled the failure. So I told you guys a long story, but it's going to get a little bit more interesting. So. I didn't graduate because I dropped a course, gave up a scholarship. Side note, I was dating a girl at that time. And I also wanted to be there and try and get back with her. But that's just a side note. I'll really mention all the time. Lost the first year in the business plan competition. So we worked on the business plan, made it even better, got pre-orders from the military. 
What do you think happened when we handed it in? Didn't get it swapped out again. Did not make it again. So when you handed the business plan, they picked five businesses to present in front of the whole school. And we were just trying to qualify for that. Third year, worked on the business plan, killed it, handed it in on time. What do you think happened? Same pattern. No, this time we made it. This time we made it. <laughs> This time, I wasn't sure where to take that. I wasn't sure where to take that. It was like playing rock. That'd be bad. I would give up for the third time. It just made me think of playing, playing rock paper scissors with somebody. They just hit rock like twice, and I'm like, "There's no way that this fucking guy's gonna hit rock for the third time." Handed it in, got selected to represent, presented to the entire school, killed the presentation. That's how I learned how to do public speaking, and we lost again. My buddy, when my one buddy dropped out. My other buddy went to a different school and then I got sick with Crohn's disease and had to drop out of school. That's when the business started. It was when I was sick in the hospital, for some reason they put me in the children's ward and I was just looking out the window. I was there for a few weeks and I called my buddy, one of my best friends from grade eight and I was like, hey, what are you up to? And he told me he was importing these LED strips from China. And I was like, that's like the worst idea in the world. But he was importing these LED, stri- LED strips from China and selling them on Kijiji, which is like a Craigslist in Canada. A few weeks later, after I was out of the hospital, I went over to his house and I'll never forget this. Like I saw a yogurt cup full of cash. And I remember opening up that wad of cash and just counting it. And I asked him like, where did you get all this money from? And he said, from that stupid idea. And that's officially when our business started. I said, can I have some? He said, no. I said, can we get into business together? And that's how we started. We used his inventory, ordered a whole bunch of use. We took that cash, ordered some more inventory, went store to store for the next three months, trying to sell these flexible LED strips. No one wanted to buy it. Bumped into a gentleman at the flea market. He said, stop selling these LED strips, start selling auto parts. Went to his store, his warehouse. He filled up our car with a whole bunch of automotive products. Didn't even know us. This is like the second time he met us. Told us, go sell it. And then when you come back, give me the difference in terms of the wholesale price. And literally did that. Saved up a little bit of money. Created a PDF catalog. Started distributing it at school. Built a website. Didn't know how to build a website. Learned SEO. And scaled it into Canada's largest e-commerce site. So this is like 10 years in that story. Basically from. Yeah. Couple set bullets. How did you... Questions, but could you expand a little bit on the Crohn's disease? Was that stress related, diet related? Like, how did that kind of pop up and how did you manage all that? Yeah, I honestly think it was stress related. I was like third year school, busy with that. I was doing P90X, which is like this workout program. And actually, like every time when I got to week eight, I always got sick. So it was about week eight when I got sick. So anytime I do P90X now, like I just stop at week eight. But uh, to be honest, (laughs) I don't know why. It was just, they did. How, how did you heal from it? How did I heal from that? Yeah. Uh, like, how did you, yeah. Like, how did you move on from that and recover and heal? You don't. It's something you just live with for your whole life. Yeah. I like they, that told me, they told me to take these meds for the rest of my life. And to be honest, I never did. And thankfully it hasn't been as bad, but it's just something you live with. You just got to manage your stress. Is that like an autoimmune disease? Yeah, exactly. Oh shit. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. No, it's okay. It's actually not that bad. So I think it's like the best disease you want to have because you can get out of a lot of things. It's like, I got Crohn's disease right now. I got a ton of exams. It just gives you time. And it's not that bad. Some people have it bad, but I don't have it that bad. You manage it primarily by trying to manage your stress? 
You know what? I don't drink. I've never drank my entire life. I don't smoke. I think that helps a lot in managing it. I honestly think it was because I was in school. I was trying to get into this business plan competition and I was doing P90X at the same time. It just got me sick at that time. Yeah, it's interesting because you're relatively, you're, I mean, you were young. I think it normally hits people later in age. Correct me if I'm wrong. And even P90X doesn't quite add up to me unless you're, you were doing a lot and you were pushing yourself. That's related to my other question of maybe, I don't know what your mental framework was like. Maybe it was really stressful. Maybe you had just a winner's attitude and you were just embracing it. But after these quote unquote failures, I was curious what was going through your, going between the years. Yeah, I think it's a combination of all of it. Like the pressure I put on myself, I gave up that scholarship. I, I went to a school that I didn't really want to go to. I lost the business plan competition. Never got back with that girl. I was just, I just felt like a failure at that time. I won't lie. And uh, that combined with a lot of not eating well and also just doing P90X at the same time. I think it was just a culmination of all that stuff that got me sick. And I just remember sitting there in the hospital and just, even though despite all of that stuff happening, every single day, one of my family members and my parents were there every single day. My mom, my dad, my cousins. And it set the baseline for happiness for me. Because now I realize like, even at the lowest of the lows in my life, when I have achieved nothing, I'm still, I still personally feel like the luckiest guy in the world because I have this amazing family. You cannot buy the family. I have the best parents in the world. I have the best brother, the best cousins. So I use that mindset now in everyday life. When I'm stressed out at work and I like losing hundreds of thousands of dollars or we're getting something's wrong with the website or something's going horribly, I'm like, Worst case, if I lose it all, I'm still good because I have food, I have my family, and I still have time. So that's incredible. That's beautiful. That's that baseline for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a, it's, I have a friend and you just reminded me of her where that's what, she, that's what she lives. That's what, that's why we promised everybody the spiritual gangster. We're starting to get a flavor. Uh, I just think it's a simple mindset. I, I think when you go through something like that and you realize like nothing else matters, Who cares with the money. It's awesome. Yeah. It just reminded me of this friend and she realized something very similar of just like living in the jungle and in Hawaii, just like living completely off of the earth and just like everything above that baseline of food, water, family is just a bonus. Yeah. Especially if you're Canadian, I think you have every opportunity in the world to achieve what you want. Are you ever going to worry about food, Scott, or health? No. My OHIP's actually expiring. <laughs> I may need to worry. I, I, I do need to start worrying about that. Hey, maybe you have a problem there. <laughs> what's What's interesting to me though is you can't argue with what you're saying, right? Like it, the, the logic is sound. Yet, and everyone knows that on an intellectual level for the most part. But you are, in my book, one of the few people who actually can internalize that feeling, really embrace it. And on the contrary, I think most people and sometimes myself included, get wrapped up in the other spectrum where it's like you're focusing on the wrong things, you're comparing yourself on social media, and you're kind of losing the force for the trees, like losing that grounded foundation mindset that you have. So I don't know if you're able to answer how do you like pull that off or is it just like daily reminders or like how do you actually like really embrace right. that, that feeling? It actually reminds me of, I know some people have been like seriously suicidal and and some of them are like the most successful people I know now because they they have the contrast of oh business is failing that's a walk in the park compared to I was about to kill it's like you have such a strong reference point that nothing everything pales in comparison so it reminds me of that a little bit yeah I think it goes back to a little bit of 
both experiences. Like when you play baseball and you play serious baseball, you have to get used to failing. It's one of the sports where if you fail seven out of the 10 times, you're going to the Hall of Fame. Playing baseball taught me how to fail and be okay with failing. And getting sick and having all those losses and having nothing under my belt and still being able to look out that window with the crawls. Mind you, I was on, I was on some morphine at that time. So I was probably like really happy, but uh, that, win that window is looking pretty good. Yeah, it looks, yeah. but when you go to that low of a low and then you have your family there, which I, like, I realize is a huge blessing in my life. You can't complain. What am I going to complain about? And, and then daily reminders. So like every morning when I wake up, I spend 10 minutes just, I, I don't really know how to meditate. I just start thinking about the things that I'm grateful for and what make me happy. And I wired my brain to always be happy per se. And taking that time to do that daily reinforces like that thought process. Cause you do get lost in it. Sometimes I do forget that. Sometimes I get stressed with the daily issues at the company or in my personal life. But when all, when, the, when it's all said and done and you start really reflecting what matters, it's my core belief is like, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I literally have a family that you cannot buy. And that's what keeps me going. And that's a part of my why. So I think we all have a different thing that keeps us positive or doesn't, right? I don't know. It's a, I've thought about it, but I'm just grateful that I think that way. So for you, the key part of your routine is, or that big rock in your routine is just waking up every day and spending that time and just reflecting on all of those things that you're grateful for. Yeah. 1000%. And then you also got to spend time with the people that matter the most. So my grandfather was just an, a gangster. Like he, like he was a, a family man, a businessman, an amazing person. And I'll never forget this. One of my aunts on his deathbed, the one thing she kept saying was when she was crying, she was like, I wish she spent more time with us, despite him being this amazing man. And that really hit me. And I really, something that stuck with me. So like family really matters. I got to spend time with them. So like every weekend, like at least every Saturday or Sunday, I make sure that I go on and chill with my family my cousins, my nephews, my nieces, because that's how I reset and just really ground myself. No matter what's going on in my life, that's what makes me, that's what keeps me happy. Just seeing them. Shifting gears on to the business, because obviously you're mutual friends and they've all spoken very highly of you. And so really curious, what did that difference in, in marketing going from like zero to say, for example, hundred K to hundred K a year, then to hundred K to a million a year and a million a year to 10 million a year and then 10 million a year to beyond. <clears throat> what is that? What are the, how did your marketing processes change in that journey? It's not even just marketing process. I think it's, you go from being the chief everything officer and doing everything in terms of marketing and actually doing it yourself to learning how to delegate, right? And then learning how to delegate, then you realize you have to create processes and systems to make sure that the delegation is actually done in a right way. And then you start thinking about ways of doing redundancies on those processes and systems, just in case you miss gaps. And for us, it was a simple formula to grow the business up to a certain size. We have a huge catalog. We have about a million SKUs on the website because we're an automotive product company. And our formula was, we figured out early on, if we upload products to the website, people will come. 
So we built, we created this process for uploading products. It created a huge taxonomy in terms of structure of the website. And then that created a lot of traffic trickling into different sections of the website. And that was our organic SEO strategy. And that allowed us to scale to a certain size. First, how did you, how did you manage that? How did you manage that many SKUs and inventories? Is this drop shipping stuff or like how did? Yeah. So when we started this business, we had no money, like zero at all. So we literally went from uploading that gentleman's products in his store and then started figuring out who are the main distributors and wholesalers in the country. We called them up and said, hey, can we sell your product? They said no. And so we just started uploading their product anyways, without their permission. We didn't have, yeah, they didn't want to buy it, but they didn't let us buy from them. So we just started selling the product and refunding customers. And then eventually we created so much demand that they had to start selling to us and we became their biggest client in Canada. Wow. And the way we did that was we used to upload it ourselves. And then we realized, hey, you know, the number, when we upload products, they start selling and get generated traffic. And then we created Excel sheets and flat files to upload those products. And then we created automations in those flat files to update them. And then now we're working on a PIM system. So it's just like constant reiteration of the process and system of scaling the products on the website. You got to figure out what that key growth factor is in your business and like really spin the flywheel and get it going. And once it starts spinning, you, you have to exert a lot less effort to get it going. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. So what you're saying is that key kind of growth factor in the business was really just creating traffic to the website that you would then bring to the wholesalers or distributors and then. Yeah. Yeah. And the way we tested like what products to focus on in terms of our SEO efforts was we did AdWords for them. So after we uploaded the products and we did the AdWords for it, we then saw what had a media ROAS and then we would start focusing the profitability on that ROAS on those sales, on the long-term SEO strategies, link building, on-page content, yeah, and on-site optimizations. So who are most of your, are you, most of your customers like the auto shops or is it the end consumer? It's the end consumer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. When I started, I didn't think it would be them, but it ended up being them. A lot of do-it-yourselfers, people that are buying it for themselves because they don't want to buy it from a dealership and pay an arm and a leg. They'd rather buy it themselves and then take it to the shop to have it installed or install it themselves. That makes sense. How did that, when you mentioned the guy just had faith in you, gave you the step to sell at wholesale, how did that, how is that even possible? Are you just like, like the way you look or like, how did that even come to be? <laughs> you know what? I, I don't know what I'm grateful at least Basile. And uh, I think he just saw us at the flea market all the time. I just love going there. I don't know why. So when you see these two kids going from each merchant to each merchant, holding a box of lights and trying to sell it to them, you start to think, hey, maybe these guys can start selling my product. And maybe from that and the familiarity of seeing us, he just took that chance at us. And I'm forever grateful for him. And he taught me, I'll help anyone just for the sake of helping them with no expectation back because that's what he did for us, right? And there's been a lot of other people along the journey, a lot of them who did that for us. And that just became my mantra in my life. Just, I'll help you as long as you're serious about it. I'll help you. And there's a few entrepreneurs that I talk to once in a while and I help them and give them strategy. I'm not going to do the work for you. I'll just help you however I can, whether that means a connection or giving you a shot. And the most important thing is I just think no expectation, just help and somehow it all works out. But he took a chance on us and 
we ran with it. I what, I re- what I really <laughs> admire, Therese, about everything that you've said so far, it sounds like you've had a few really key lessons that have then grown into principles that you've really, you've gone into a lot of depth with each one. And it's, I think it's a testament to you because it's so easy for us in the world that we live in today to really just get distracted. And because there's so many things, there's so many opportunities, there's so many different avenues. And what the main takeaway that I'm hearing from your story is, okay, there's these few principles. There's this one business that I've just really gone really far in, in, in great detail and depth into. Yeah, 100%. I think it's something I still, I struggle with right now because when I was younger, it was clear. It was like, I have time to fail. Like in my mind, failing was good because you got used to failing in baseball. And if you can trick yourself into thinking, not even trick yourself, if you can convince yourself that if I fail, learn from the failure, improve on it, make it better, and then just repeat that cycle, eventually some good's gonna come out of it. And that's what we did. And if you really think about it, I had a whole bunch of businesses that failed and this is the one that kind of had some stickiness to it. So. Once I had some stickiness, I'm like, okay, how can I scale this? And the product uploads was the process. So we're like, okay, let's just keep uploading products. So it just made sense logically to follow it, follow with it and just keep going at it. So I don't think we did anything special. I just think it's just a lot of hard work, got lucky and just found a path that worked for us and still navigating, man. We're still failing every single day. Man, there's some buyers that are happy right now as we speak that are just... It's a battle every single day. I do not wish entrepreneurship on anyone. Yet it's still the best thing ever. It's a weird, it's a weird world. This is a funny dichotomy, isn't it? Yeah, 1000%. And you guys probably know that yourself, right? Like even the podcast in itself as a business in itself, it's health and it's heaven at the same time. I can totally agree with that. <laughs> I don't think anyone really knows that until they do it themselves. I don't think anyone really understands what an entrepreneur goes through unless they do it themselves and they experience it because it is not easy at any level. I don't care if you're running a mom and pop's convenience store to Amazon. It's you struggle. You're still working 80 hours a week. The only difference is the size of your dream. Size of your dream and the tenacity and persistence. Uh, Stick with it. I think the big thing is it can be really isolating and lonely. So I, that's part of the podcast, part of why I try to connect with people like you always looking for, whether it's like mentors or just colleagues or whatever, like just people to keep it not just you in your head, you versus you all day kind of thing. Or you are even, sounds like you've got a good business partner. I think business partners, you're like the most high risk, high reward thing on the planet. Can destroy your life or make your life if you find someone who's a good partner. What that was a pursuit. So how did you identify, what did you figure out as like your quote unquote strengths? If you look at it from a partnership standpoint or from a unique value added, like what do you think you're smirking? For our non-visual auditory listeners. I'll be honest. My strength is strategy and seeing opportunity and like I'm going in that direction and like pointing like this is what we need to do and predicting what the next five problems are going to be. But I'm super lazy. So my business partner was like, once I pointed that direction, he just started going, like running mm. with no plan, like just going. So when we started the business and I was still sick at that time, he was uploading products himself in his closet, like manually. Like we're talking about, he lost his job 
at that time. And he was about to go get another one. I told him, Hey, listen, like we have this thing called EI in Canada, unemployment insurance. I was like, how much money do you have saved up over the last few years? He had a few thousand bucks. I'm like, okay, why don't you spend the next year uploading products, live off your savings and EI and just do that for a year. And let's see if it works. Any normal person is going to be like, first of all, what are you doing? I was doing nothing. I just had the strategy. I was sick. I was going back to school, but he's honestly one of the best human beings I ever met. So he just put his head down, started uploading literally from a closet, uploading products, created the process for uploading the products for a whole year. And then because of that, it started, the business started growing online. So my strength was strategy. His was just doing. Interesting. So it sounds like you found the vision, the integrator to your visionary. Yeah. Yeah. And it has been instrumental throughout the years and just, he's really good to help me in really making difficult decisions where I'll delay it. If it's firing this employee or talking to this vendor or doing something difficult, like sometimes he just does it and doesn't even tell me. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's good. Whereas I try and delay it as much as possible. So I relate to that. I relate to that. I just had to let somebody go today and it was super painful. Yeah, it's the worst. It's an interesting wrinkle that you touched on there with your partner being on on EI. And I can't remember where I read it, but I read that Canada actually has a higher entrepreneur rate than the United States. And it's stories like that. that and what they attributed to this too is that the higher the safety net of, of namely healthcare, but it's interesting to hear that 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 safety net helped support you guys and helped you launch into help you launch your company. Yeah, 100%. But also like, we just had very low expenses. Like I was living off $20 a month. Like I had a loan from school that was paying for my school tuition and I got food from my parents and I had a home. They didn't give me any allowance. We're brown, but they don't give you allowances. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. I just got $20 a month from the government and GST, HST check. And I lived off that and I just had to pay as you go follow. And that was it. So having really low expenses also helps. <laughs> and just living like a bum for five years helps while you're doing it. Holy shit. So you've been doing that for five years? Yeah, it took us five years before we earned a salary of $500 a month each. Two, because all the profit we put back into the business, we didn't touch it. We were like, we realized let's, first it was us two. And then once we started getting sales and orders, we became the support, like chief everything officer, accounting, reconciliation, data entry, sales support. And then we realized let's use the profit to hire our first employee, but we made sure that employee did the growth work. So they were doing the data entry. It's very easy for us to say, hey, let's assign ourselves a salary and then hire that person. We're like, no, let's use that money that we were supposed to pay ourselves to hire our first growth employee. And we kept doing that. So it eventually became five years. And then eventually we started being able to take a $500 a month salary, <laughs> which is a lot when you're living off $20 a month. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's just a lot of grind work, man. I would not do it again. It's grind work, but it's but it's delayed gratification. Like you're growing, business is growing, there's increased profits, but you're just punting, delaying the gratification. And like you said, just reinvesting into the business. So it's- 100%. It's, 
It can be tough. To, I think it's really hard to battle paying yourself versus growing the business because uh, usually it takes money to make more money and to continue to grow. So that's always a tough thing, whether you do that reducing your expenses or finding like a part-time or work elsewhere to kind of offset it. I think that's a pretty important thing to juggle. 100%. It also helps when you're younger because like when you're younger, you're living at home, right? If you have the ability to live at home, then you could take advantage of that and don't have to pay for your own stuff unless you do, but we, I didn't have to pay for my food and housing. So I didn't really need anything aside from that, aside from bus tickets and a pays you go phone. So everything else went back into the business. Which part of Toronto are you from out of curiosity? Born and raised. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's Toronto's an expensive city to live in. So it's so, it's impressive that you stuck it through five years. Of that, yeah. extremely impressive. Yeah, and it's getting more and more expensive. Part of our uh, business strategy now is we have our, a lot of our core staff in Canada, but we do we have been able to outsource a lot of our some of our staff overseas in Latin America and the Philippines. And there's just some super smart talent all over the world that if you can create the network to find them, significant cost savings and also highly recommended for any business. Why do you recommend, like you said, creating the network? What, why do you recommend going about that? We also just started a BPO. And if anyone wants to help outsource it, we have that section of our business. We just started and we actually created that by accident. My, one of our employees is actually, she's married to my cousin and she was from the Philippines and she came here and she, her name's Ellery. And she was literally instrumental in helping us create that team. So we got lucky. I'm not going to act like I know how to do it. She's the one that. You tapped into our network there, help us create the team recruitment. And we grew it, the team there over to a certain size that by law, we had to register for the license to, to actually, we had to create a BPO, a business process outsourcing company that sells the services to my, to TDAL performance. So now we've accidentally created this second business, which we just started like a month ago, started selling the services to other e-commerce and other businesses. So if you want to outsource work, whether it's customer service, accounting, reconciliation, anything that can be done remotely, we now help other businesses in that whole process. How did you choose customer support and accounting and reconciliation? Because we do a certain level, a certain amount. We actually just got our first BPO contract our, ourselves. So how did you on that specifically? Well, I, I was just going off of what she recommended. She was the one who kind of said, Hey, like you guys can outsource some of this work and we needed to, we're a razor thin margin industry and fluctuations in prices happen all the time. So we had to become very lean and those were the tasks at hand that we could document and had repetitive aspect to it. And that's why it was just the easiest one to, to outsource. Interesting. But it's become a core competency for us actually, because now we're able to find super talented individuals all over the world for any aspect of the job, whether it's not even just customer service accounting, it could be marketing, pricing analyst. There's just, you know what, Kyle actually taught me this on my last trip, one of our mutual friends with Brian, he's the one that really taught me about the power of outsourcing. And then even in Latin America, there's a ton of talent for on the digital marketing side. So if you could build that core competency out of your business and sell services and revenue into North America, not every business within North America can do that easily. 
because of that trust factor. They just don't know where to start. Yeah. The trust factor is big. It's yeah, especially if you don't know where to start or if you're not familiar with, for example, sourcing talent on Upwork or Indeed or whichever whichever platform that it is that you're using. And hiring and training is, has its own learning curve to it. And it's very difficult to, as well. Like, I mean, traditional hiring methods tend to have about 11 to 14% success rate of stickiness. Like you said, building up that core competency is just so much, has immense value. I will not take any credit for that. That was all Ellery and her team. I think in the last few years, like we've probably lost like two, two people out of like retention of three plus years. Like, wow. yeah, I think if you find that one person that can really help you find a network over there or anywhere properly, that's the key. Just focus on that one person who can then find you that next person. Because they'll know what that bar of quality employee actually means. And they'll only refer you to people of that caliber. Sounds easier said than done. So it was mostly my employee. <laughs> That's amazing. I would love to chat with you about that outline. So it's less about the marketing milestones. We said, like, you, you found your growth edge, which is just uploading crap ton of products. Like, what were the progressions? There's like a lot of delegation, and then you layered on more sophisticated paid advertising or kind of like what was, or just rinse repeat of what you found that worked or like how did you kind of contextualize the different growth stages? Yeah. Okay. So at the beginning, we didn't have demand side, sorry, we didn't have supply side. So we created demand side, like I said, by uploading products that we didn't even, could even sell. Then we got the supply side and got a ton of supply side. So because we're dropship, we could theoretically upload everything in our industry. There's probably about 20 million plus SKUs that we can upload. So we only have about a million. So we still have a ton of products. So we built the site to automate and scale uploading products. And then we did marketing in-house ourselves. We learned it, picked up a book, went to the library, learned how to do SEO, and then did it ourselves at the benchmark of what those KPIs are. Then went out and found an agency that can beat it and said, if you can beat this, these KPIs, here's the contract. Then that kind of started growing on the marketing side, doing AdWords and SEO and scaling that. And then on the data side and infrastructure side and development side, we just had to start hiring and growing talent. And I think the biggest thing I learned in building the business is like, one, really make sure that you focus on your accounting from day one. And creating like a really good accounting system as you scale, because it can get out of hand really fast. Really focus on automation, even when you don't have to focus on automation. Like from the get-go, we started focusing on automation. We were able to help us tremendously right now. And then we grew out of one of the platforms. We were on a platform called Pearl Stores, which is like an eBay store at that time. They shut down and we had to actually move to Magento. So that was the enterprise platform that helped us unlock a whole bunch of other growth because there are so many different things we could do with Magento in terms of accommodating our product selection. So if you really think about our growth lever was just having a ton of product on the website and then just doing the traditional email marketing, SEO, AdWords, social, and then like the next phase of our business, because we're still a dropship and I still think this is the biggest mistake we made. I think the next phase is doing in-house 
products. So leveraging the platform and the traffic that we created to launch and incubate our own high margin in-house products. And then just continue conversion rate optimization. Wow. Lost so what's the e-commerce platform? Why did you choose Magento over say like, for example, WooCommerce or Shopify or what went into that decision? Yeah, at that time we were looking at Shopify and, but Shopify didn't have an enterprise solution at that time that they couldn't go, I think three categories deep. So we have something like year make model. So when we cr created the architecture of the site, like you can go to make, and then you can go to make model and then gear make model. Those have their own categories. And then it's like a huge architecture when you add it in a ton of database products. And then you can do brand year make models, another landing page, subcategory brands, year make models. So these are all individual landing pages. Post, sorry, Shopify couldn't support that at that time. Now they probably can. Magento was the only one that could support it. Interesting. For someone looking to go to zero to one or zero to a million, what, like that first, whatever piece that you're way past now, do you, would you say a lot of these strategies still apply or do, do you, does it depend on the industry and niche or? Yeah. So our, yeah, our strategy worked for me because it just logically made sense. You get a million products up. If one person visits every single page, that's a million traffic to the site. It's a totally different ball game if you're selling like five SKU and launching an in-house brand and creating your own brand awareness. So it wouldn't, I'm not going to lie. It won't, I wouldn't apply to those type of e-commerce individuals, but I do envy those because if you can get that going and creating your own demand for your own in-house brand, you're commanding, I would assume you're commanding higher margins, right? Ours is a commodity per se. You're not talking about deep margins. You're just doing high volume. And then with that high volume, you, you can, you have economies of scale to push down your price and do a whole bunch of things. But with your own in-house brand, if you can figure that out initially and totally different strategies. Now I would do different like influencer marketing and social, a social content strategy is what I would do if I was launching just like a high margin e-commerce brand, dropship brand, but it's a totally different strategy. And I know it's a unique one, so it doesn't really apply to many different people, but if you're really if you really think about it, it comes out to content. We just, we're putting out a lot of content. In the form of SKUs. In the form of SKUs and product content. So if you go to that page, there's a product description of what it does. If you really think about it, that's all it really is. Content is king, right? So you just got to make sure that de that demand is there per se, right? So all these people had these vehicles and we're looking for those parts. So if they Google search their vehicle or that part, they would find our page. I just don't think many people spend the time or thinking it was logical to upload content for all of those products. We thought, hey, we have 10 plus years, let's do it. Let's create a process and a system to upload this content. It's super fascinating from a search marketing standpoint where, because you have, I'm assuming what happened and yeah, I'd love to share your thoughts on this, but just be, based on uploading those SKUs, say for example, because you've already built this domain authority, you upload this specific SKU, somebody Googles a specific part and then just naturally it brings them to the site. Yeah, exactly. The biggest mistake though we did was we launched in Canada. We should have launched in the US. We would have been 10 times bigger. It's a classic mistake. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we did launch in the US. We just did some black hat stuff. So then we had to restart. It's funny, my, a friend of mine, 
does uh, is in wholesaling for iPhone uh, yeah, for iPhone parts and cell phone repair. And one of his business partners said, "It's we should really prioritize launching in Nigeria before we should prioritize launching in Canada." <laughs> This is market of 200 million people versus market of 40 million people. Yeah. If I could go back, I know exactly what to do, but that's for the next venture. And where are you now with it? Are you looking for the next venture? Do you plan to continue this? Do you plan to sell it? What's the, or is that a kind of private information of like your next steps that you intend to do? Yeah. Evaluating the landscape, I guess. We're trying to figure out like, how do we really, from a macroeconomic, this is like our first recession was started when 2007, 2008 was around. So we're strategically looking out, we're trying to figure out what are the next moves for us. So we launched our U.S. equivalent site under a different brand in the U.S. about two, three years ago. So that's growing well. But as time goes by, I'm realizing more and more, we need to start pushing our own in-house brand, using the platform and traffic to sell our own product in the different categories. And that's a totally different beast. Pretty much learning management of inventory of our top SKUs. Because out of those million SKUs on our site, only 70,000 actually sell. The rest of them bring traffic into the site. So really studying the inventory. Basically, yeah, right now we're trying to figure out, trying to get the capital injection to launch phase two of our business, which is like in-house brand and inventory and a warehouse. So more vertical integration or growth. From a dropship to managing the wholesale side, and, and you're kind of, it's like the Amazon of auto parts. Like you, you have it all there, and now you're starting to own up to the supply, not just the. Platform. Yeah, theoretically, that's the goal. Like I come in, Amazon, like Amazon has the most ridiculous strategy in the world. We're gonna not just have every single product in the world on our website. We're gonna hold stock of that, and when they start doing that, that pressures other businesses like ourselves to start thinking about that. And the only way to really compete with that is to create your own in-house brands and really push those, like something with 70, 60% margin that you could sell to your audience, right? And that becomes a big chunk of your business. And then working with shops on installation services so the customers can go pick it up at the shop and create a network of shops. Something we were working on is a social commerce platform. So we're trying to, we created an app and it's still in development. But essentially, we wanted to create a community of car guys where they could show you exactly what they did to their vehicle. So, for example, if you had a Ford F-150, imagine going to this place where you could see everyone else with the Ford F-150. You can click on their profile. Their profile is their car. You can see what mods they have, what parts they do have and parts they don't have. And then you would have confidence. Oh, if he has this Canon air intake on his Ford F-150, maybe I should have it. So we call it like social commerce. So we're going to use our e-commerce platform to create supply side on this marketplace. Basically, we're trying to incubate a marketplace with social commerce. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense. You're trying to initiate transactions on your platform. Yeah, exactly. So we built an app essentially where it's your profile is your car, not you as a person. It's a car. And then you can click on the car and see what mods I have. And then I could, someone else could click on it and buy that part. And then the supplier of that part would be TDOT Performance. It would be one of the suppliers. And we would allow our competitors and manufacturers to participate on this marketplace. That's the next step. And then how do you go about planning out those objectives and accomplishing those objectives, but then you're also launching this BPO? Yeah. So 
that's the biggest challenge that, that we're having right now is balancing. I don't know how anyone runs multiple businesses. I think my business partner is pretty much going to be running more of the e-commerce operations in Canada, the U.S. And the BPO, one of our staff members or whoever we put in charge of it, will be running that. And I'll be running more of the growth initiatives on the marketplace. You really have to stay focused. It's impossible to do everything. I don't, I don't we don't even have to talk about Elon, but I think the most important thing is having a team. You got to have a team to do it. You can't do it by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm like, it's how did it, so that's actually a really relevant question. So when you were going from how many, just out of curiosity, like how many layers of management do you have right now? Not much, just one below us and then each department. Yeah. Each department. Okay. So it sounds like you have like really two, like where you have the department, you have the ground staff in each department, and then you have those managers that they directly report to, right? Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So are you, do you find yourself like having to create systems, processes to support your managers better? Or say, for example, if when one manager becomes bottlenecked, like how is it that you're handling that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that is probably what I spent most of my time doing when working on the day-to-day -day stuff is analyzing processes and systems that are broken, analyzing processes and systems that are missing and creating them with our management team. We didn't even know what processes and systems when we first started. We just did anything and everything. And then we realized, no, wait, you have to create documentation for it so that your staff members can actually do it. And then you have to have the management look at the whole process from A to Z and see, is there anything missing in that? And is there loopholes? And you have to constantly think about how do you improve that? And what I realized is I shouldn't be the one going in with the manager to help improve the process and system. You have to make the manager himself sufficient enough to improve the process and system himself within each department and give him the ability to do that by removing tasks that are something that he shouldn't be doing. So that's what I'm starting to learn. And when they start doing that, it becomes a lot easier for you to start focusing on other growth initiatives, if that made sense. That's the biggest thing that I'm struggling with right now is, yeah, my management team is largely task-driven as opposed to problem-solving driven. Give me, give me an example. What are they, what are they doing that's task-driven instead of management? Uh, for example, in our call center software, I have my, one of my call center manager, my call center manager is actually procuring the data. He's actually collecting that data and then processing it so that it can then be put into a report. He should not be the one doing that as an example. Like he should, we need to have somebody that's doing that collection and cause he needs to be focused on, for example, training and he needs to be focused on training and building up the team so that we're maintaining and then actually increasing our benchmarks as far as uh, like service quality, as an example. Yeah, exactly. So when you really break it down, they're doing two things. And I always try and break up my time in my calendar. You're doing urgent, non-important work, right? No manager should be doing urgent, non-important work. You should be trying to be doing not urgent, important work, right? Yeah, I forgot what book I stole that from. Stephen Covey, I think, but I'll never forget like the premise of that. So what's something that's not urgent, but important for us was uploading products. We upload another million products. It's not urgent, 
but it's important, right? So we really make sure that when we look at the tasks of our managers every single week, and even myself, when I look at the calendar and we block out time for like different things, we want to really make sure that the majority of their time is spent on not urgent, important tasks that really, and theoretically, those are the things that help scale or grow the business. Now, if they have too much urgent, still important work to do that are like urgent, but things that don't grow the business, they have to, we have to help figure out, okay, do we automate that? Do we streamline that? Do we get someone else to do that work? Do we take out that work completely? We have to figure out how to get the people who are really focused on growth, working on growth things. You know what I mean? Such a, yeah, that's such a simple way to put it. And uh, another mentor of mine, Brian Purley, that we had on the podcast, talked about a similar concept of mid-level versus junior, like mid-level operations and below, which really should be focused on that day-to-day of like putting out fires versus senior operations need to be looking into the future. And it's such a simple methodology of how you, your modality of how you put it, of managers should not be focused on, or should not be doing urgent unimportant tasks. They should be focused on important, not urgent tasks. Yeah, an ideal world. Listen, they're still going to have stuff that they're going to have to do. But what you want over time is it becomes less or becomes more automated as time goes by or the team is self-sufficient enough underneath them to be able to handle all those tasks and really only come to them for guidance. Mm -hmm. And that's what we task them in is trying to figure out like what is not urgent, important work that you could do and really emphasize, okay, how do you do that? And what's a breakthrough that you can have that's really going to help us to scale the business? And even for myself, like when I think about that, like me working with the managers to do non-urgent, important things in itself is a non-urgent, important thing to do versus helping them actually just do their own work. So it's like at every level, you have to be trying to do that to, to an extent. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great nugget. Yeah. And it took us years to figure this out because we used to do everything like CEO literally means chief, everything officer, but at different phases, I was at a conference for the profit 500 meets a list and there was a room of CEOs. And I just remember asking a question like, what is my job? I don't know what my job role is. And everyone started laughing because they all agreed at different stages of your business, you as a CEO, you have different responsibilities and I don't really know what my job is. So I really wanted, to, I, I honestly wish there are some CEOs out there that I could just follow around and watch them and how they operate their business. Maybe I just start messaging them and be like, Hey, can I just follow you around for a week? <laughs> just see what you think about a series. Yeah. Cause I think that would be interesting for entrepreneurs is like, what do you do? And this, it's different at every level, right? But fundamentally, as you jump through different hoops and you get employees and you grow, it kind of changes and you can all grow into a similar path of what you need to accomplish. On, but yeah, on that, I'd love to learn on, that. On that note, did you have any mentors or guidance or coaches along the way? Or did you just kind of figure out yourself or like, how did you have anyone to kind of give you these higher level vantage points? Yeah, we had some great mentors along the way, but none really that took us under their wing and said, this is how you do it. Yeah, it would help you when you went and asked questions. And that was something I learned. If you don't ask, no one's going to help you. You should be, don't be afraid to ask or message. There's so many CEOs out there. Like when I meet them, 
I asked them so many questions and they really appreciate it because they understand the struggle, right? Ask them to go to a coffee, take out a CEO to a coffee or a C-level employee or whoever. If you just ask, what's the worst that they have that could happen? They say no or they laugh at you. Who cares? Right. That's the first thing I learned. But no, yes and no. We had mentors, but we didn't have someone that really took us under our wing. They helped us for specific things because when we asked for it, they taught us that. Now, what I wish, and I learned this from Kyle as well and some other friends, is like creating a network of entrepreneurs is actually one of the best forms of mentorship because you're going through it together at different levels and you can use similar technologies and processes and systems or recruitment processes. Or even just like, just like someone to lean on when you're struggling, right? And like, oh, don't worry, I went through that too. So that is a, another form of mentorship in the form of a network, like a strong network of entrepreneurs. Like message your competitors in different regions or geographical areas or whoever and just be like, hey, do you want to share ideas? I think most of them are, will be open to it. Let's help each other. Like you can do a lot of things on LinkedIn now. It's a good reminder to keep. Because a lot of it's, yeah, it's like, did you even ask, did you even cultivate these sort of relationships and things? And that's a great, so yeah, it'd be nice if you had the spoon fed mentor, that'd be nice, but this, I think it's a myth. I don't think it really exists. Maybe it does. Maybe it does. You never know. But if people ask me stuff, I'd help them. They just have to ask. It's interesting on the network of the entrepreneurs is so important to have that community of community support, really. And that's one of the, that's one of the greatest gifts that we have to share of this podcast is just really is sharing this network of entrepreneurs that we have with the world that we've met in various different stages of our life and traveling. Yeah, no, it's a great idea. And I commend you guys for the pursuit of that. Cause I think we all need the support along the way. I do not recommend entrepreneurship to anyone at the same time. I recommend it to everyone. It's this weird world of, that we navigate, but if you have a community behind you, 100%. So what, is that what you're most excited about is those new business ventures or like what keeps you, you talked about your why at the beginning of this, what's your why, what keeps you in the game? What keeps you excited to, whether it's to grow or to just to not quit or to get bored or like what? Yeah. For me, it was the why it was obviously just always being able to take care of myself, my family. And my future family. But after a while, it becomes like a game. It becomes like fun. It's okay. Like, how do we grow this? How do we level it up? Like, how do we think outside of the box? Like, we're just a traditional e-commerce site that sells automotive products, dropship. Nothing exciting to put. But if we can really execute on in-housing and creating our own brand and launching our own inventory system or launching this social commerce platform. I honestly think we could take on some of the bigger players in the industry with the social commerce marketplace. Like if we can launch that, we can take over the whole industry. And that's what excites me is that kind of being the underdog and just really going after the entire pie. That's what excites me. I'm a, just like to compete. No, it's a, that's what I was just going to say. It's just a competitor. It's the competitor's blood in you, which is awesome. Yeah. Just give me yeah. all that fucking pie, baby. Give me that's I'm good. Pie. Every other pod, every other podcast is like, yeah, your slice is pie for everybody. It's like, no, but so like, might as well. It's just like, when do you want to flip that mindset? But it's like I said, it's, it feels difficult to like truly embrace that in the beginning. If you can, more power to you. But you hit a stage of you hit a level of success where you're going to be able to pay for your all your stuff. So now it's a game. It's, but 
would you would that would it benefit an entrepreneur to apply that mindset earlier on versus stressing about trying to cover and take shelter and put out fires and whatever? Yeah. When I was first starting on, it logically made sense for me to start a business. Because like the way I saw it, I thought it was more risky to get a job because I had no control over my financial future. That's the truth. I thought if I could spend the next 10 years from the age of 20 to 30 and fail, I could just get a job at 31. I'm then I'm 33 now. So luckily it worked out, but I thought it was more risk to not try and launch a business. To me, failing and failing fast was a part of my lunch. We just got lucky in that it wasn't the first business, but it was lucky that it kept that business stuck. And I still think I love the way Gary B's like, like we're still young and like at 33, even if I fail and lose everything tomorrow, say we get hacked or something crazy happens, I still have that mentality in terms of, let me just start again, because it's, I feel like it's more risk working. Why does it more risk? Well, and I saw my parents lose their jobs, right? After working like 20, 30 years, slaving away in a factory, like they lost their jobs and just out of nowhere and financial freedom, like. I, I remember in grade 10 reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and like, just, it, I loved the book. It was like the first book that like made sense to me is like, you just, you create an asset that generates cash flow and eventually that asset, you don't have to work for that asset. Like it's passive and it just made sense. So I'm constantly just trying to add assets that generate cash flow aside from my core business, like Airbnbs and stuff like that. So it just made sense to create a asset. That could generate cash flow. And at the same time, I just wanted to buy a baseball team. I couldn't be a baseball player. So I was like, let me see if I can grow a business to buy my own baseball team. I'm not even close to that. I don't even want to pretend like I'm balling like that. But that was like the mindset. No, fuck it. I'm not going to be a baseball player, but let me see if I can buy a baseball team. So you're like Gary Vee, but you're actually good at sports. <laughs> no, <laughs> not even close to Gary Vee at all. Gary Vee's next level, but I have to be one day. But he wants to buy the Jets, you know what I mean? The entrepreneurs with the buy the team mindset. It's the modern day nighthead and money can't, money can't buy everything. But you have to also be like a halfway. I'm on a sports team. No, I don't, I don't know if you can though. I think you have to, you have to also be like a somewhat representable human being and in, in the human eye. I don't know, but that's my understanding. <laughs> Not there yet. Nothing. So the indefatigability, it's the hardest word to pronounce, indefatigability, but you just do not get tired. Just, there's no fatigue. There's no, like, that's one of the core things that I'm hearing. You lost it. You keep going. There's, yeah, just think, I wish I could just like download your mindset. Really. It's like, you don't give up. You keep going. You stay positive. You stay grounded to your family and what you have going for you. I think, I really think, I think you're a smart guy, but I, but the most thing, the biggest thing to me is that I would want to soak up. It's just that that rock solid, I'm not, I can make it. I'm not going to give up. If I fail, I get back up. If I lose it, I sell my family. That's something that's what really, that's the whole reason I was like connected with you. when I first like, that's to me, the biggest thing. I just wonder like how much that has helped you throughout your journey. It's like, to me, it's, to me, it's huge because entrepreneurship, you don't have to be that smart, but you do have to be tenacious. You do have to like, just lick your wounds, get back up, I think. But yeah, it's anyway. So if you have any other, any other fleeting bits on like how you, how people can absorb that or cultivate that for themselves. You mentioned like waking up in the morning or if you just feel like it's a natural thing for you, but that would be an interesting yeah. thing to flush out. Okay, listen, we all stress about different things. Personally, right? You have your personal stresses, you have your business stresses. 
If you really think back three months ago about your stresses, I bet you most of them are irrelevant. None of them really matter. And it was just worrying for no reason. There's probably a few that mattered, but for me, for the most part, nothing really mattered. So when shit hits the fan and life really sucks and you're in a hospital bed and you're like 120 pounds and you have this disease and you lost everything and your baseball career is done and you're dropped out of school and just shit seems like it's not going the right way. And then you realize, oh shit, like I still have the ability to get healthier. I still have my family. And you realize at the core, if I could be happy with this, which is nothing but still everything else is truly a bonus. And I don't know if you have to go through that suffering to really realize that like I did, because a lot of people are going to roll their eyes and be like, yeah, it's so easy to think that. But like when you really get sick and you're in that hospital and you have, that's why I said it's like the best disease that I ever had is because it wasn't really kill me. It just made me sick and I'm going to have to live with it, but it's not that bad. For me, at the very least, some people have Crohn's, it's horrible. No, but that's my, yeah, that's my point though, is it's like the opposite of me rolling my eyes at it. It's like, I know it's like a basic thing to say, but it's what, like you said, maybe you have to go through the suffering to like really realize it, but it's it, as basic and simple as it is. I just know that not everyone can truly have it, have their own stickiness with that concept. Yeah. But why? Write it out. Tell me why. What are those thoughts that come into your head when I tell you that? And you're saying, yeah, I believe you, but I don't believe you. Why don't you believe that? And write out those questions and really start exploring why you don't believe me. What's the first thing that comes to your head when, when I say that? I know you believe me and you understand it or you admire it to an extent, but why don't you believe you can do it? There's this idea in conscious leadership that is, are you above the line or are you below the line? And above the line being thankful, gracious, playful, curious, open, collaborative. And then below the line is when you're serious and you believe your own explanation of a given situation and you feel like you're right. And generally the more below the line you are, the most like the more serious, more frustrated, more angry, depressed, or whatever you could be. And what you've really shared to, today on this podcast, Reith, is just your commitment to being above that line. And that's the biggest thing that, that stands out. Yeah. But let me ask you guys this, like whether I was... If I'm above the line, or even if I was below the line, either way, I'm right. If I'm below the line and I have this negative mentality, that's going to become my reality. I'm going to see the opportunities. I'm not going to see the opportunities that I wanted. I should have seen. I'm going to focus on that negative and that's my reality versus if I'm above the line and I choose to be that way, like I choose to be happy versus unhappy. Listen, I am unhappy sometimes. I am stressed out. I am not like this happy-go-lucky guy all the time. But I consciously choose and I've wired my lifestyle and my brain to be happy and think above the line because it benefits me the most to think that way. I'm consciously choosing to believe that. It's the same way I consciously believe, consciously choose to believe that there's an afterlife and that there's a heaven because it would suck as much as I think, hey, maybe there isn't one. I'd rather lie to myself or not lie to, I'd rather believe there is one because it would make me happier. So it's the same way I can't, I'd rather be a positive, happy, go lucky guy that doesn't care about anything but the basics because that benefits me the most. And once you logically think about it, it logically makes sense to be that way. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to cultivate beliefs that 
the value is not quote unquote truth or probability. The value is just pragmatically which one actually benefits you the most. If you think you're going to live for a thousand years and you want to plant a thousand trees for the next thousand years and you're thinking long-term and whatever, is that going to happen? Like maybe not, but it's just like, which one's actually going to give you the best subjective experience of your life. So that's yeah. a really good, that's a really good reminder. And I eliminated the risk. The risk in my head was failing, right? Like failing sucks to a lot of people in general, it sucks. But I eliminated that by thinking failing, I made failing okay in my head, consciously deciding it's almost like a badge of honor. Like I failed, like switching that mindset, like failing is good. So what really is going to stop me? So I chose like the worst situation, which is failing. And I said, no matter what, I'm going to be good. What else is going to stop me? It's just effort now. It reminds me of Tim Ferriss' like fear setting exercise where he flushes out what you said of, okay, what's the real fear of failing? And what's the implications of that? Nothing. Or what, like, ne- not, not, you just, not, you don't die. Okay. So you don't die then. Therefore, yeah. and just normalize it basically. And just like get that into your bones. And the worst fear in this capacity would be failing. And you've come to peace with that. So therefore you can kind of just operate full steam ahead. Yeah, exactly. That note, Therese, absolute pleasure to have you on. Yeah, likewise, guys. This, is, this has been awesome. So thank you for having me. I hope we didn't disappoint your first podcast appearance. I hope you had a good time. <laughs> no, I did. I did. Definitely. It's going to be cringeworthy watching myself. I've never done that, but uh, no, I really appreciate you guys having me and giving me this time platform. So I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you sharing your yourself openly and your journey and everything. So thank you for showing up and really bringing that competitor champions mindset to every, everything that you do. Fuck. Yeah. It'd have been hilarious if you're like, yeah, you guys first podcast was shit. <laughs> I've been, I, I've been on better. I've never been on another podcast, but I've been on better. Thanks again. And we'll see y'all on the next one. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Now, with this episode at a close, let's fucking vamos on out of here.